Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives. But those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, I am Daniel Libet. Hi, I'm Mike McKenna. And I'm Evan Novi williams and this is the College Sports Year in Review Sports Business Podcast, The Sportacast. Fellas, Scott Soshnick is tied down right now, gives us the opportunity uh, to have a fun conversation recapping what has been a crazy year in college sports from conference realignment, the death of the Pac-12, we have college football playoff expansion, an avalanche of antitrust lawsuits begging Congress to step in. Uh, I'm sure I'm leaving another, a few other big stories off the table. I guess maybe the easiest place to start. I'm, I'm curious for both of you, uh, is college sports in a, in a terrible place business-wise, as a lot of people contend? Is it in a healthier place business-wise? How, how do you assess where we are right now in December 2023? Well, I think it all depends what you mean by business. Obviously, it seems to be making money more than it ever has before, and that trend is is the consistent upward trajectory that we find in college sports as a ongoing venture, um, as a thing that is going to not have to deal with constant litigation. I think it's in a terrible place. Um, maybe slightly better than it was a couple of years ago. It seems like it's being dragged at least on the player compensation front to a more um, balancing fulcrum against its will. Uh, but I don't think that that solves, you know, the the fundamental underlying challenges for college sports, which is basically that it's this Frankenstein monster that existed for decades without really anybody uh, dealing with the financial, legal, philosophical hypocrisies and and inconsistencies uh, that it is now having to deal with. So I think it's at a point where uh, it can improve. Um, it, it is improving when we look at NIL in terms of its legal position on that. Um, but no, I, I think it's, I, I think we look ahead to 2024 and the years to come. And I at least see college sports 
in this uh, scattered situation that it currently finds itself in. Yeah, I, I agree with Daniel. I mean, the, the business is, is obviously generating tons of money more than ever. And college sports overcame COVID and all of the worries about streaming. I mean, it just seems as if college sports is this robust thing. But, what, but when you break it down, it, it, you really see divisions that are potentially catastrophic for the future of college sports, at least as we know it. Uh, Daniel referenced the litigation. The NCAA will be in litigation probably for another decade Hmm. because of what's going on now. I mean, whether college athletes are employees is a really complicated question that involves different levers, including state law, including federal law, including appellate review of what agencies do. Then we have antitrust litigation. There's all sorts of cases, including one out west, which could lead to the NCAA and Power Five conferences having to pay over $4 billion in damages. We don't know who actually pays that. Is, is that the NCAA? Is that the conferences? Is it the individual schools? Do insurance companies play a role? Do they all, play this, do they all pay the same thing? These are unknown answers. The answers to these questions are totally unknown, and they're hovering over college sports. And I also think we're beginning to see kind of the fraying of this behemoth that it, when we think of college sports, we think of the NCAA, we think of division one. I don't, I, w- I don't view it that way anymore. I would say division one has 30, 40 schools that are basically a pro league, which is what Charlie Baker, I think is pushing for as a way of distinguishing them from the rest of the pack. Because if these other schools don't want to have employees and don't want to pay many millions of dollars in antitrust damages, they really have to separate themselves as businesses from those 30, 40 schools that are making a lot more on college sports than others. And and how that plays out over the next few years is going to be fascinating. Because as Daniel said, this model that has existed for decades is under such rebuke legally, philosophically, morally, I don't know what the core of it is anymore. And if we don't know the core, how is it going to hold together? One of the crazy things to me about this is that I feel like everybody, most people, not everybody, most people seem to know where this ends, right? And it ends in, with what you said, Michael, a, a, a bigger fracture of the, of the richest schools and then everybody else. It ends with players, at least at those schools and in some sports, perhaps getting paid. Um, I, I, most athletic directors I talk to, seem to know that. It certainly sounds like college football coaches, at least what they're saying now, their rhetoric has changed a lot in the past couple of years. They seem to actually understand that as well. And yet, I think you're both right. I think we're in this weird middle ground now where it's going to be years, years plural, before we get anywhere close to what I think most rational people would see as the the only end result of, of the upheaval we're seeing now. Well, and I'll, I'll quibble with even the concept that that is the end result. I think that's a different place where college sports is, but I don't think that ends the challenges. I mean, we've started to see this this year. I think this might be one of the key storylines for next year, which is the, the collision between Title IX and mm. fed, federal gender equity laws and what is considered to be the fair market compensation uh, for college football and basketball players. Um, I think these things are irreconcilable. I think if you want to pay college football and let's say particularly men's basketball players what they, and I'm going to use this term in air quotes, ought to be paid according to the market in a direct compensation model, 
there is no way that they are going to be earning what you're playing, what you're paying uh, equivalently to female athletes uh, at, on college campuses. I, you know, I think you know it's it's yeah. well known. It's the ultimate nudge, nudge, wink, wink in college athletics. Nobody is complying with Title IX by the letter and really by the spirit. Even if you get beyond just the number of uh, grant and aid for female and male athletes on a campus, the amount of money being spent towards men is all in every university that plays in Division One wildly greater than what it is for women. But that is only going to get uh, more complicated. And now we're actually seeing uh, one lawyer in particular who is just going school by school and challenging them on their Title IX compliance. And, you know, Mike, this is this is within your domain, but it just seems like he's going to have a field day. I mean, what school in its current uh, iteration can defend itself of uh, of its Title IX practices? And then especially if you want to add on the layer of, you know, equitably or fairly compensating the so-called revenue sport athletes, that is going to just become more and more complicated. So I think on the player compensation front, just looking squarely at that and putting everything else aside, there is an endpoint that you were referencing, Evan, that it might still take years for for us to get to. But I don't think that's the end of the story. I just think that's the close of a chapter. Can I, the, the other piece to that is we hear about the drive for college athletes to not only become employees, but to unionize. Who's in the union? And, you mm-hmm. know, that's going to have a dramatic effect on who gets paid what, because I think we're going to see conflict between college football players and men's basketball players not wanting their other classmates who are not on revenue-making teams to be in their union, because the union's going to represent all of them. And that could lead to conflict over, you know, do you want your classmate who's on the wrestling team, who is going to be part of your bargaining unit, is that going to suppress wages? I mean, the, the, these are these are questions that come up throughout labor law in the U.S. They come up at universities. Like, who's in a who's in a faculty bargaining unit? Do you have your you know you have certain types of professors there, not others? I mean, these are all sorts of distributional questions that we haven't even gotten to that are going to be their own source of litigation. So, yeah, this is I, I don't think college. I mean, you're there's an end game. But the method of getting there has so many roads it could take and so many there are so many winners and losers along the way that we don't know the identities of. And that could trigger its own set of legal battles. Starting earlier this year, there was an unknown variable in a lot of this conversation, which was a a new president at the head of the NCAA. I believe Charlie Baker started in in, in March. So we've had nine months under his leadership. in my opinion, looks a whole lot like the leadership looked before before him under Mark Emmert. How do you guys kind of assess what changed, if anything, when 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 Charlie Baker, the former governor of Massachusetts, took over as president of the NCAA? I think it made a little bit of a an assist on the PR front and and maybe on the relationships in Congress. I agree with you. I think it's substantially similar. We could even play a thought game now of if Mark Emmert hadn't retired, would there be anything really differently <laughs> what's different, going on yeah. with the NCAA? I mean, what, what Baker enabled the NCAA to do is to not have the same president who had been so strident on some of these positions, including NIL, um, have to do the complete 180. 
uh, because it's a new person and he can always lean into the fact that he wasn't there. But he is, you know, very conservative um, on the on the change front for the NCAA and seems to be exhibiting the same kinds of pains to make these incremental changes um, and that that are being effectively forced upon the NCAA. Um, but Michael, I'd be curious if you thought if, if Mark Emmert was on the seat right now, would the NCAA be behaving any differently? Do you think that Baker is is any bit more forward thinking or radical than uh, than Emmert, or is it just a different moment in time in which he's uh, serving? Well, I mean, the different moment in time always makes comparisons hard, right? Because it's like comparing U.S. presidents when they have very different circumstances. But I, I do think Baker is a little bit more forward looking, and I think we know that because a couple of things. One is when he took over, he had an interview with our own Evan Novi Williams, where he said, where he at least distinguished college athletes. He said, there's a, yep. there's a top tier that, sh- that should be treated differently. Mark Emmert never said anything like that. So that, so, and then secondly, we have Baker's new proposal, which I don't know if it's going to become realistic. I mean, it's got all sorts of hurdles to it, but he at least is saying kind of the obvious, yeah, there's like a pro league here. And we should maybe separate them from the other pieces of college sports. He's at least coming up with something. Now, I don't know if you know, schools paying college athletes NIL directly, to me, sounds like a wage. To me, that sounds like em- employment status. That's a separate question. So I don't know, uh, you know to what extent that's going to move forward. But I do think he's at least trying. The other thing that he'll be better at, I suspect, than Emirate is as a politician – I think he could read the room in Congress that that's it's probably a waste of time going to Congress mm. and lo- nothing's going to happen. Right. We're entering an election year, uh, a, an unprecedented election year where it, the oxygen in the room is going to be focused not on whether college athletes are employees or whether the NCAA should get an antitrust exemption or what NIL should mean on a federal level. Those are really not that important issues, I think in the grand scheme of things. So my sense is Baker's move to push forward a proposal, I I bet reflects at least him looking at his time in Congress saying, this may be a big waste. That, that's interesting to me because the, 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 it seemed like his hiring was largely for that one purpose in some ways, right? You learn a lot about the way a company thinks about its direction by who they choose to to lead it and, and where that person came from. And to me, the fact that he came from politics felt like it was a very clear nod that the NCA felt like Congress was its option and it was going to put all the eggs in that basket. I would push back. He came from state politics. He came from Massachusetts state politics, which I know well. Yeah. Uh, I, I used to work for the attorney general. I mean, I worked for a DA. I know this state. He is he is a Massachusetts creature. And he is not. A, I mean, honestly, if the goal was Congress, they should have hired a former congressperson or a former senator who may have had more suasion. Uh, you know, Baker's confidants are at the state level. That's where he used to work for, uh, you know, Governor Bill Weld. I mean, you know, I don't I, I get what you're I, I think having a political person there. But to me, the fact that they picked a governor um, rather than a senator or, or a Congre- member of Congress um, may have an impact. Yeah, I, 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 that's a very interesting point, Mike. The Because, again, ostensibly, what Evan was saying was my read on it, too. And I think a lot of people's takeaway was that this was just a 
sort of the Hail Mary attempt to get that antitrust exemption the the NCAA has never been able to get um, passed even out of a committee in Congress. But, uh, you know, the one thing that he has is he is an outsider, a college sports outsider. And I got to tell you, uh, from my personal experience, just reporting on college sports, the people who are inside at the AD level, at the NCAA level previously, have been the worst at reading the room and just reading mm. the situation. Uh, it, even when I talk to, uh, not to insult sources of mine, but even when I talk to people regularly who are very much a p creatures of college athletics and how they've predicted over the last two or three years the way the change will come, the rate of change, they've been wildly off. And the best people for seeing you know, the future, at least the current future we're experiencing, have been you know, economists and academics and people who have kind of looked at this from the outside and have been much derided from their, for their ivory tower perspectives on where things were headed. But yeah, I mean, the, you know, everything that we're seeing right now um, has been, has been prophesied by, by professors more than athletic directors. Staying on this topic, there was a time, let's say 20, 25 years ago, where a lot of athletic directors were rising from within athletics. They were either famous coaches that had already coached there or had been in the athletic department for a while. Then we saw this this shift towards development. We saw a lot of people coming from fundraising, coming up to be athletic directors because that was the new game. It was how well can you separate famous local alumni from their money and schmooze and, and be personable and walk into a room and walk out with a million dollar check. Um, now, a lot of those, that guard is retiring. We've seen a huge turnover next year. I think we're going to see even more. Some of the most famous athletic directors in the country, Jack Swarbrick, Gene Smith, um, are, are either stepping down, they're, they're, they're deciding they don't want to do the job anymore. I'm really curious to see what the next group of leaders come on. It, it, as we talk about Charlie Baker, um, there are some athletic directors that you could argue are, are more powerful, uh, are, are more influential than he will be moving forward and shaping the way that colleges make money off sports, the way in which athletes are compensated. Um, and, and I'm really curious if it's if the if, if this new class comes from from finance backgrounds, which we've seen in a few places, Graham Neff at Clemson, for example, or if it's a totally different area that I'm not thinking about that I think will, will, will again, in some ways kind of tip the hand or show the way that elite college sports, I'm talking about at the, at the SEC and the Big Ten levels, what they're thinking about, what they need next in leadership uh, in the next 10 to 15 years. Yeah, we're even seeing that, you know, certainly at the level of conference commissioners as well. You know, there, there is this, this search. Yeah, and I for think sure. that's Great point. a right-minded search for finding people who are outside of the of the industry because the industry, you know, having institutional knowledge of the industry over its last 20, 30 years is not really getting you the right perspective on where things ought to go. And, and people are coming from finance. They're, they're, they're coming a lot from media. I mean, you know, so much of this is being driven by television revenue and streaming revenue that you're seeing at the conference level. Maybe you'll see this even at the AD level, you know, people coming from ESPN or CBS Sports or Learfield or, or so forth, you know, the, the, the media component of wagging this whole operation. Um, but, you know, and then, then there's the other thing that people don't ever like to talk about, which is, you know, maybe where things get complicated again if some of these present issues uh, uh, are tamped down or resolved. And that is kind of this this strange relationship that's going to only become more strange between higher education and big-time college sports. You know, it, it already 
feels tenuous. Does it, and does it exist? No, I mean, do, I mean, no. For, for all intents and purposes, no. Yeah. Except in that everybody's agreeing that there is a relationship. Um, but you know, it's perhaps not fair that this is going to fall on players when players start earning uh, more and more money. But I can foresee that being the case. That you know, this is going to give rise to more questions and, and louder criticisms about what does this have to do um, with any kind of nonprofit exercise and what does this have to do with these institutions of higher learning. And, you know, that's once again another front that we're really not, you know, those noises are not really being made these days. It's really athlete compensation rights uh, leading, the, leading the charge. But I think that's lurking around the shoulder. Well, we should, I mean, we should talk about, I mean, I, I think we can make that noise now in some ways, right? The, the, we reported earlier this year that, that Florida state was in talks with, uh, JP Morgan raising potentially private equity money from, from, from outside Sixth street was what I had heard was the main group involved. But once you have athletic departments at public schools trying to raise institutional money from, from hedge funds or, or from private equity to, to, to fund athletics. Yeah. I think, I think that tether fully breaks at some point in the next few years and, and whether that's a formal spinoff of football and men's basketball or just football alone or whatever it is, I, I just don't see as much as schools in the big 10 obviously love to talk about the, 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 the academic side of the big 10 membership and what, what that all means. Um, some of the schools they've led in recently uh, maybe don't align with what they were talking about. The academic standards were a decade ago. Yeah, I think that that is that that is one of those fallacies that 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 I would put in that category of everyone knows where this ends up. It's just how long does it take to get to that line being being severed? Well, and college sports does not want that. I mean, you know, the Ann Arbor Wolverines are not going to get a hundred thousand people in the football stadium. It's very important. It's you know, this is where college sports has been built around the mystique, um, the the kind of sense of community is built around these universities. Even if most fans really don't care, you know, in that realm about the academics component of this or the university itself. But so I think it's going to be very hard. Even if college sports effectively severs in every other way, I think there's gonna there there's this need to still be tied, still have the branding of the university, and you know agreed on the branding for absolutely, sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I, I don't think these are all mutually exclusive. I I, I would say you yeah. know, look at other college departments. They take money from private funding. They do partnerships with businesses. I don't think taking money. An athletic department getting linked to some sort of business, it would have tax implications in terms of the tax break that they get. It would have uh, potential implications if the athletes are employees. But the, 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 I would say, honestly, a lot of colleges and university presidents are pretty entrepreneurial because even public universities, look at how much money they actually get from their state. You know, most of these public universities are really private in all sorts it's of not, ways. Not a lot, yeah. Right, it's not a lot, and it's going down. And I think you know the, the nimble college president is now trying to develop partnerships. And I think that's could be the athletic department. It could be the physics department. It could be you know uh, I don't know the media department. I mean, there, there are all sorts of associations. So in that regard, I think college sports taking money. Uh, isn't isn't as transformative. I mean, it's transformative because it's it, it, it's sort of the opposite of amateurism, right? But amateurism doesn't really exist. 
right? I mean, you know, look at these TV deals. I mean, let's just throw that out the window. Let's be realistic. And I would say uh, embrace opportunities if I were an athletic department. And if I were a university president, I would be pushing for that because I don't want to be reliant on public funding. Yeah, that's a good point. And we also have to, I have to remind myself this all the time is that, you know, higher education is not a fixed point. You know, we're, we're in this strange and, and convoluted moment in the way in which universities are operating the entire structure of their budgets, you know, and we're seeing, you know, not at the division one school levels, but we're seeing a lot of, you know, smaller liberal arts schools going away because they can't sustain themselves. And we're seeing tuition going crazy. Um, so, you know, just as much as college sports is going to change, college is going to change perhaps, you know, just as dramatically over the next decade as well. Especially with demographic changes. If you look at the population, there's a dip coming uh, in terms of enrollments at a lot of schools. So they're going to have fewer students. It's going to be more competition for a smaller group of students. We hear constant references, uh, sort of critiques of higher ed that people shouldn't go to college if it's going to cost $80,000, do something else with your time. I mean, these are all constraints on you know, we're talking about college sports, but they're part of this larger entity that's facing all sorts of challenges. Mike, I get, I'll admit, I get total whiplash thinking about all of the lawsuits that have been filed against the NCAA and, and where they stand. If you can, because I imagine some of our listeners probably feel the same way. What, what's the most concise way to kind of sum up either the, the, the ones that are, are maybe the biggest threat to the NCAA or really kind of where we are? Because I know there were a few filed even in the past couple weeks as, as well, um, just just where the biggest liabilities are and what, what, what the main thrust of these lawsuits are. Yeah, the, the big one to watch is the one out in California. It's the class, sometimes it's called House v. NCAA, but it's, it's actually, the, the title of it has changed. It's a class action lawsuit involving now over 14,000 college athletes who were from the Power Five conferences who are suing arguing that the NCAA and the conferences illegally conspired under antitrust law to prevent conferences from paying the athletes TV money. So that's TV money of the past, it's TV money of the present, it's TV money of the future. Billions of dollars that could have gone to athletes in contracts with different networks. That case also involves if NIL was okay in 2021, 2022, and 2023, why wasn't it okay in 2020? How about all those athletes who could have made money on NIL, right? That's part of the case, too. And the case also says if the NCAA had allowed players to be in video games and not forfeit their eligibility, EA would have made a bunch of games, more money for athletes. The, 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 the thing about this case that's different is two things. One, it's certified as a class action. Sometimes we see class action lawsuit. They're not actually class actions. They have to be certified, which doesn't come till much later. And a lot of lawsuits don't get certified. But this one has, so it has that feature. The other thing that matters, it got passed a motion to dismiss. What does that mean? It's in pretrial discovery. And a class action lawsuit that gets passed a motion to dismiss is a nightmare for a defendant, particularly when it's antitrust law. It's super expensive. It's invasive. The damages could be in the billions. The question becomes, how do you settle this? The NCAA has called it the death knell. This is the NCAA saying it, not me. <laughs> it's because I don't know how you fix it. How do you get out of it? And who pays what? This is this to me is a disaster, an unfolding disaster for the NCAA. 
in ways that n none of these other ones are. I mean, the other ones might become that way, but they're not there yet. The other, there's also a new case involving challenging college, uh, the, the grant and aid, basically saying, you know, why can't college athletes get paid their market value? That was the original Alston argument, and it got rejected. I, I'm not saying it's going to happen here, but we'll see. That case is, is not going to, it's Cunningham. It's going to be years before it plays out. The other sort of genre of, of legal controversies for the NCAA is whether college athletes are employees. There's a case involving a petition uh, involving USC football players, men's and women's basketball players. There is Johnson v. NCAA, which is a lawsuit saying that college athletes are employees under the FLSA, which would mean they get paid minimum wage and overtime pay. And then the one involving Dartmouth men's basketball players. Honestly, that may be the worst one if you're college sports, because mm -hmm. that one is moving past. And it's already had a hearing in Boston. They're waiting for a ruling from the regional director. It will get appealed to the board in D.C., and then they'll be, it'll go to court. It's not, it's not going to end for years, but that one is moving fast. And if, and if Dartmouth basketball players are employees, who is it? Right? I mean, it's, think about yeah. it. I mean, think, think of, think of I mean, that's a program that has small attendance. Uh, now, they're going to say, wait a second, that doesn't matter. Because under employment law, how many people are there doesn't matter. If Dartmouth says they're losing money, that doesn't matter either. That's not that's not a relevant. That's, it's an interesting point that might be in a headline, but it's not an actual legal matter. And they also note, you know, it's interesting. They some of these players have part-time jobs. They already have Dartmouth as their employer. They're already paying taxes, and then they have classmates in dining services who are in a union. So the idea that you can't be a student and an employee is totally false. It's totally false at these same schools. So uh, I, it's a, such a fascinating time. Uh, and I would say, you know, these things aren't going to end tomorrow. They're, we'll probably still be talking about them and at the, this, when we do this thing next year. But it's moving in the direction. If I were the NCAA, I would be really, really worried. It, it just seems like the end point is, I mean, the NCAA doesn't have billions of dollars. I mean, it's a pass through to these schools. So short of it having the world's greatest insurance, you know, liability insurance policy, um, it seems like its fate is in bankruptcy court at a certain point. Um, and I mean, what settlement could it possibly strike with these classes that would be satisfactory? Do you have any thoughts on that? It's a great question. You know, what, what would it take to convince these athletes? I mean, what, how much money do they want? And the lawyers, of course, are going to get a huge cut of this. Uh, this is this is going to be. I mean, this is great for the lawyers. I'll just put it that way. Yeah, I, was, and, I know who the winner is here. Yeah, and the, the winners are the lawyers who are going to make a small fortune, not a small fortune, a real fortune from this case, a true, real fortune, life-altering fortune from this litigation. And uh, you know, Daniel, I don't know what the number is, and it, it, I guess it depends on who we're talking about, right? I mean, if some college basketball players may say, I should get a lot more. I mean, this goes back to the issue of they all don't want the same thing, right? If you're a star player, shouldn't you get more uh, than than the bench warmer? I don't know. That could be it, it could be interesting for us to look at. Like, what is the number? 
that makes a settlement possible. Daniel, you, you wrote something earlier this year, a, a really good story about the Big Ten's kind of leadership transition from Kevin Warren to Tony Petitti, Tony being a, a college sports outsider. Um, and one of the things you found was this tension between kind of the old guard in the Big Ten and the, the new guard. And I'm curious, looking back on that reporting, um, what do you think you took away from a lot of what we're talking about here? This, as college sports thrust into totally new ground, the fact that there are people that 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 want to hold it back, and then there's people that that want to move it forward. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's consistent, sort of, with the theme you just pointed out. I mean, because there's still, you know, college sports is still very much. There, there's so much history it has, and it's built up so much infrastructure over these last several decades that even as it tries to change it is a slow moving ship and there's a lot of internal resistance to change and not all change necessarily is good i mean in many ways the fact that it's so profitable shows that it has done something right if you're looking purely from a mercantilistic perspective but uh there is that kind of thing you you mentioned you know the this wave of retirements of of ad's you know we we've seen at the conference level um at the power conference level especially you know, a whole new crop of commissioners um, who have come out from a very different uh, background, in, including Petiti and, for that matter, Kevin Warren. Um, and yet, we still have a lot of uh, a lot of the the same people um, and a lot of the same thinking that's you know permeates at the conference level, at the NCAA level, uh, and so it, you know, change is hard. The fact that there's not real um, organized unification. Uh, among athletes or among, you know, administrators also makes it difficult. There's, there's a lot of cross purposes and different agendas. Um, you can see this, you know, that was kind of the microcosm I, I found in reporting, you know, a long feature about Kevin Warren's tenure and then uh, more recently about Petiti's. But uh, yeah, it, it, you know, it, it, there's a lot of internal struggle. So even as college sports is dealing with all of these outside threats, um, and the let's say the establishment of college sports is dealing with a lot of these outside threats. It's also dealing with a lot of internal discord because there are, you know, the, these new a new wave of of people and, and differing thoughts and and yet a lot of of existing credo as well. Yeah, it, it, the the word amateurism it, it was historically used to apply to athletes. Um, I have found in, in in covering this space for the last ten years that you could apply it just as easily to the business approach that a lot of these conferences and universities have. And I do think I do think that that is changing. Uh, stadiums being a, a perfect example. I, I think the the way professional sports teams think about stadium development and financing and economics is so drastically different than even the the the, the highest end college football programs think about it even though 110 people go to go to Ann Arbor Wolverines games Daniel um but 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 only 80,000 go to the biggest NFL games every uh, every week i think there's going to be a, a a big revolution in that regard well, and they've well. we've ripped the the facade off i mean th- that's the other thing and that was what i noticed at the Big 10 we see this in general is that as much money is being made um there's still been this effort to portray college sports as something that's not purely commercial. And uh, so people have been slow or slower to fully embrace um, this in all ways, the the reality of college, of the industry in all ways. And I think certainly over the last couple of years with NIL has come this sense that, you know, we don't need to pretend anymore. 
and we can get on with the business of the business. And, and, and so we're seeing that now. And, uh, uh, but it was a long time coming, you know, given that this has been a multi-billion dollar industry for a while. It wasn't, it didn't just happen in July of, of, uh, a few years ago. It, it's been, it's been that way for a while. So I, I want to. We should wrap up, and I want to wrap up maybe by by having each of us give a, a a bold prediction for for what we see in the in the crystal ball for college sports in twenty twenty four. I'm I'm happy to go first. I, I've got two: one small one and one bigger idea. The small one being, I think I think the NCAA makes a big step towards sports betting at some point in the next twelve months. It is the last major U.S. sports league that has not fully embraced all of the money that comes along with with, with sports betting uh, data partnerships and also partnerships with sports books. Uh, it took a step back this year after reporting from the New York Times. There's lots of reasons why it's a thornier issue in college sports than it is in, in professional sports. But but as we talk about the, the increased professionalization, the, the facade being ripped off, there's a lot of money on the table. Um, we've talked about why the NCAA might need it as well. Um, I think we're going to see some progress or, or, or steps forward in that direction. And then more broadly, um, I, whether it's Florida State or it's somebody else, I, I think in the next 12 months, we see some school, some athletic department make a big step in reorganizing, refinancing, whatever it is, the way it thinks about athletics, either taking football apart, taking football and the basketball programs apart, separate funding model, giving up equity in, 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 the, in the commercial rights, whatever that looks like. I think we see someone uh, make a big step at some point soon. I'm sort of now applying a, a reverse dog ear calculation to uh, my predictions in college sports. Anything that you think was going to happen in seven years, you can now assume will happen in a year. And so in that spirit, I think there is going to be something put in play in the next 12 months of directly compensating athletes. I don't even know if that's a bold prediction anymore after uh, Charlie Baker put it on the table or at least put a proposal on the table. Um, but I, I think, you know, there there will be something by December of, of 24, a plan in place with a set deadline of when at least certain kinds of college athletes will earn certain kinds of revenue directly from the schools. Uh, and again, you know, th this is this is the question I've been poll testing sources for the last three years. And, you know, if we were talking a year ago, I feel like most people who I spoke to would say, oh, that's coming, but that's five, 10 years down the road. Um, but everything that has supposed to have taken place five or 10 years down the road ends up taking place in, you know, two or three months down the road with maybe NIL collectives being my, my favorite example. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, at some point, you know, in this, in this coming year, um, that is going to be put into some sort of effect. I don't know if it's going to happen next year, but I do think the NCAA settles the in-ray college athlete NIL litigation. Mm. It's just, it's just too much. It's truly a death blow if they don't. I mean, I, I, just, I, I literally, I can't see them going to trial, which is scheduled for 2025. So 2024 is important here. Uh, now, it could get pushed back, so I'm, I'm mindful of that. But this case is such a frightening piece of litigation for the NCAA that I don't know how they don't settle it. And I bet it becomes a real focus point for Baker and his staff and his legal counsel. But really, and this goes to Daniel's point about where's the money, they got to figure out who pays what, what is the role of insurance. These are hard questions. I don't know the answer to them. I don't think they know the answer to them. 
And so that's my prediction. They settle the case. Well, guys, we'll have you uh, back on in 12 months, and we will play these uh, clips back, and we'll, we'll see how we did. Uh, thank you very much to Mike McCann. Uh, he is the foremost expert in college sports law out there. You can find him on Twitter at McCann Sports Law. Thank you to Daniel Libet. He is the foremost expert in college sports hypocrisy. You can find him on Twitter at Daniel Libet. I am Evan Novi Williams. You can follow me on Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. The Sportacast is produced by Aaron Greenewald. Thank you very much to Aaron. Sportico's digital media editor, Cora Veltman, would like you to know that you can follow the show at Sportacast, which is the hub of the Sportico Media Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs>